Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, welcome to Fever Dreams. Uh, my name's Will Summer. I'm a political reporter at The Daily Beast and the author of an upcoming book on QAnon for HarperCollins. And I'm Aswin Subtang, but please call me Swin. I'm a senior political reporter at The Daily Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. All right, here on Fever Dreams, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious and sometimes scary world of the American right as they continue to influence our politics. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, these grifters, and these influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Welcome to Fever Dreams. I'm Will Summer, and I'm joined today by none other than original Fever Dreams co-host Asawin Subsang. New father, new daddy, also father of the podcast, co-parenting with me. Swin, welcome back. I still have new daddy brain right now. I just got off of my first leg of paternity leave. I'm going to sound like this probably during the whole recording of this episode. And I'm not going to remember that any of this happened. So if I say anything particularly inflammatory, it can't be legally held against me. A fugue state. That's good podcasting. As I think you've told our audience, I've been gone for the past six weeks because little Dylan Subsang was born recently. He is just a little over one month old. He is a bundle of joy. He is also a terrorist. And I'm sure all of the fathers and mothers who listen to our pod can empathize with what Liz, my wife, and I are currently slugging through at the moment. It's very joyful in a very sadomasochistic sort of way. And please, all of our listeners, send me as many derisive tweets of both support and also schadenfreude as much as you want after you hear this. Thank you so much. Okay, having said that, Will, what have I missed? Do we have a new president yet? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what. One of the things that happened while you were gone was this group of QAnon believers anticipating JFK Jr. coming back to, to life, essentially, alongside of John F. Kennedy, the father, Dale Earnhardt, Robin Williams. There was a whole crew. They believed they were going to come back to life. All the famous Trump supporters, by the way. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. So right around November 2nd, hundreds of these people flocked to Dallas. And this was originally sort of a one-off item on the podcast. I didn't expect we'd be hearing from this group again. But I'll tell you what, it's been nearly a month and they're still there. And they're still getting into antics, which is maybe a light way to look what is starting to be the beginning of a cult. Swin, have you had a chance to take a look at this crew? A little bit, and I'll confess mostly through seeing your tweets popping up on my phone sporadically. Basically, there was a lot of stuff that's easy to casually mock and deride as just, oh, these are crazy people doing stupid group crazy things in public, but it also runs the gamut all the way to stuff that actually sounds legitimately horrifying that we really, really hope doesn't happen, like talk of potential mass suicide and really gutter deranged stuff like that. Do I have that correct? Yeah, I mean, that's accurate. So 
since last we checked in on this group, a lot of the people have sloughed off. There's still about roughly 100 of them in Dallas, but they are still very active. They've kind of dispersed. This is sort of like, how do we create a QAnon commune on the fly? And so they've dispersed to various Airbnbs. Vice, Dave Gilbert at Vice has done some great reporting on the financial issues going on there where various family members are turning off credit cards so they don't get drained or blocking bank account access. It's really a personal tragedy. I have talked to some family members who have spouses or parents in this group. And these are people who I think seemed relatively normal to their relatives and then have sort of given up everything to move to Dallas and wait eternally, seemingly, for JFK to show up. Last on Monday was the anniversary of the JFK assassination. And they flocked back there and kind of showed up in force again in Dealey Plaza. And then there's so much weird stuff going on with this group that this is really like, this is not orthodox QAnon. This is not mainline QAnon. This is like really sort of several degrees removed from that. I mean, even just thinking JFK Jr. still alive is sort of looked askance at by about 80% of QAnon. But then these guys are like way further down than that. So they've become convinced that John F. Kennedy Sr. is running a Twitter account and they look at his Twitter and then it says, hey, can everyone go back to Dealey Plaza and do a candlelight vigil? And so they all go to Dealey Plaza. How old would former President Kennedy be at this point? Uh, I believe 104. But don't worry, they thought of that. But he's on Twitter. Oh, they thought of that. Okay. They thought of that because he's going to come back to life or he's going to sort of unveil himself. He's no longer like occluded and he will return. But then he will be president for only a few weeks. Then he'll die and Trump will take over. So this has all been figured out. But basically, it is truly bizarre. I think what's striking to people about this group is how a lot of QAnon stuff happens online and it's like, how do people believe this? There's a lot of people who I think foolishly are like, this is all a big joke and they're they're trolling Will and stuff like that. But then you see people who, who are hanging out at their QAnon Airbnb and they see a tweet from that says, I'm JFK. And it says, hey, everybody, get to this one particular place in Dallas tonight. And they do it. No, 100 of them do it. So I think it is an interesting exploration of the limits of belief. And you mentioned, Swin, that this potentially more dangerous element they've taken. Some of their leaders have started saying, well, the only place we can reach this sort of level of achievement or ascension is if we die. And obviously, at that point, you're you're really getting into kind of some like suicide cult stuff. Then you're going to see who of the dozens who are willing to gather in that little public collective are actually committed to the bit and who is going to get off the train the moment they start talking about literal poison Kool-Aid. Yeah, hopefully they all do. I mean, it is a disturbing operation, and we're certainly keeping an eye on. I mean, the Dallas police say they're aware of them. It's just kind of remarkable to me that it's still going on. I think it's definitely a sign of how widespread QAnon is, frankly. And these guys live and operate in a world where if Robin Williams and JFK Jr. and Sr. were still alive today, they would be all in on Trumpism. I can understand maybe two out of the three. But to think all three of them would be all in for former President Donald Trump, how does that compute? Maybe that's a completely useless question to even ask. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I don't think it makes a ton of sense. The backstory here is that basically any celebrity, they, they believe any celebrity who died suddenly or tragically was in like DJ Avicii, people remember him, was basically actually faking their death because the cabal was closing in. And so they decided to go join like Tupac and Robin Williams on this island. And now that for this big parade, they're supposed to be coming back. So obviously this isn't happening. But I think the other thing that's interesting about this group is they're really into committing to specific dates in a way that a lot of these other groups are not like a lot of other QAnon offshoots. There's a lot of like 
they do like red October, like something will happen in October, maybe. Oh, well, maybe it's October 2024 or whatever. I mean, these guys are like, it's happening tonight. And then obviously it doesn't happen. Right. By January 26, 2022, at 8.42 p.m. Eastern Time, Janis Joplin, Sam Cooke, Jimi Hendrix, and Kurt Cobain, they're all coming back to Phoenix, Arizona to endorse Donald J. Trump for president of the United States in 2024. Basically, that's how you do it, right? Right, exactly, exactly. So we'll be keeping an eye on him. So we're talking here about the power, I think, these cults of personality have. And, and one figure who definitely has a, a hold on, I think, the, the minds of a lot of people in the, the Trumpian right is MAGA lawyer and once famed defamation lawyer, Lynn Wood. King. King, yes. Owner of a literal plantation <laughs> in South Carolina. And so Lynn Wood is in some hot water after the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict. Oh, and this is the thing that is getting, that's provoking Kyle Rittenhouse himself to denounce his former lawyer, Lynn Wood, as a scam artist. Do I have that right? Yeah. So there's something interesting going on here. So Lynn Wood briefly was on the Kyle Rittenhouse legal team. I mean, he claims he was he's not a defense attorney. I don't think he was officially his defense attorney, but he was involved in this fundraising to get Rittenhouse out of this out of jail. And, and Rittenhouse had this like really hefty two million dollar bail. And basically, Kyle Rittenhouse, who's now, of course, this feud has kind of been brewing for a while. Lynn Wood had left Kyle Rittenhouse's team. But now that Kyle Rittenhouse and his lawyer have won, they're kind of ascendant, right? And they have all the heat behind them. So on Tucker Carlson on Monday, Rittenhouse said effectively that Linwood and this other lawyer were botching the case or trying not to get him out of jail because he was a way for them to raise money. Because you could say, get Kyle out of jail, right? And so that really like puts Linwood in a hot spot because... Kyle Rittenhouse is just like the darling of the right right now. Now, to add to this trouble, there is still this fight over the $2 million bail that got Rittenhouse out. So the money's going to come out because Rittenhouse has been acquitted. But now Lynn Wood says, well, that bail's owed to me because I raised the money. Kyle Rittenhouse says, well, it was raised for my benefit, so I should get the bail. So there's like some real stakes here. So Kyle Rittenhouse comes out, blasts Lynn Wood on Tucker Carlson. And now Lynn Wood is like just spiraling out. He's already like a pretty, I would say, erratic guy. He's facing disbarment in Georgia. He got in really hot water in this Michigan would-be 2020 case where this judge recommended him and Sidney Powell for discipline from their state bars. So he's a loose cannon, <laughs> I think it's fair to say. And he sort of occupies this unique zone, shall we say, of Trumpian celebrity, where he has the distinct honors that goes twofold. A, he is a extremely prominent figure on the MAGA right, particularly the MAGA online right, who many of which still view him as sort of this folk hero. But in the B column, he's still getting viciously owned online by so many other Trumpian and MAGA luminaries. This was sort of brewing already in the final days of the 2020 to 2021 presidential transition, but it's sort of coming to a head now where sort of an easy target for all these different pro-Trump celebs is to come out and basically bat Lynn Wood around a bit online. One prominent example is former Trump White House official and one of our favorite characters on this program, Sebastian Gore who is obviously, with the help of his incredibly erratic, shall we say, social media feeds, has descended upon Lynn Wood 
as a all caps, quote unquote, fraud. Yeah, absolutely. So Gorka is, has always had a beef with Linwood because Linwood is a pro QAnon guy. Gorka is an anti QAnon guy. But what's interesting here is that so he posts a picture of Linwood with fraud written across it. And he says, now this, I don't know, the lawyers listening can weigh in on how these criminal charges would stand up. But he says Linwood should be charged with fraud and aiding and abetting the false imprisonment of Kyle Rittenhouse. So he's saying that, you know, Linwood was conspiring to keep Kyle Rittenhouse in a jail. It's a bit much, but basically, you can see how it's open season right now on him. The other thing to note is a lot of these MAGA people don't like Linwood because in the Georgia election and the Georgia special elections, he came out and said, look, if the election was stolen in November, there's no point in us voting. Basically, you shouldn't vote in Georgia because it's just a fraud. You're participating in this illegitimate election and we need to sit out the Georgia election. We shouldn't vote for Republicans because then that'll put pressure on Republicans to support Trump. And when you start telling people not to vote, that's really when or to donate money as well. It's kind of like you're messing with the bag. That's sort of when a lot of people turned on him. I would also say they turned on him when he said John Roberts is a part of a pedophile cabal. Supposedly Wood believed that Trump would appoint him to be chief justice, according to various lawsuits. Exactly. So it's a win-win for him. And also, this wasn't something that was just happening in a vacuum. It wasn't just something Linwood was farting out onto the vast hellscape of Twitter.com. He was someone who, along with his former partner, Sidney Powell, were two MAGA lawyers who were actually pretty regularly meeting with or communicating directly with then-President Trump. They were giving him political and legal advice during Trump's months-long anti-democratic crusade. And they were really feeding and helping to perpetuate and back up Trump's delusions about the 2020 election. And they contributed to how much Trump ended up basically depressing his own party's turnout in the Georgia elections, which, as we all know, ended up leading to a Democratic-controlled Senate during the beginning of a Biden presidency, which gets back to your main point earlier of why so many people in the Republican Party are actually furious with people like Linwood and Sidney Powell, because they do, in part, not entirely, but in part blame them, and also to a much larger extent, Donald Trump, in terms of costing Republicans the Senate, which they really believe they should have been able to hold on to at the dawn of the Biden era. I think you're hitting on something here, which is like Linwood, Sidney Powell, I would say Michael Flynn as well, Overstock.com CEO, Patrick Byrne, maybe Mike Lindell. These are all people who really hit the height of their prominence in the aftermath of the 2020 election and really kind of made their names by just like jumping on the grenade, just being like, yes, the election was stolen. Maybe Venezuela did it. Just really going for it and swinging for it in a way that a lot of the more staid Trump personalities maybe didn't go all, all in on. For example, the people who are not currently being sued by Dominion voting systems. So what's interesting here is like Linwood, he's at his plantation to Motley, and he is getting pretty wild on Telegram. But what's interesting here is like, there's a lot of people who I would say on the right are sort of like Linwood in Game of Thrones when they're like, we're calling the banners, right? Like he's calling his bannermen. And there are people like bounty hunter Stu Peters, who I've written about on the Daily Beast. There's kind of like a lot of like just guys who like go to all these voter fraud conferences and they're all going in for Lynn. They're defending Lynn. But interestingly, Sidney Powell is very quiet about this whole Rittenhouse thing and she's not backing up her guy. So Lynn weighs in and he says, Sidney Powell's comments on the false ambush attack against me by Fox News and Tucker Carlson. Crickets. Hey, Sidney, I thought you loved me. So he implies that she's. You have to read more of those posts with your Lynn Wood impression. You, you can't just do one sentence and then leave our audience craving more. I'm calling- I am a Southern boy myself, so I think this is all right. And so he brings up the name of her nonprofit here and he says, is defendtherepublic.org under investigation by federal authorities related to its finances? Hey, Sydney, 
Are you in a multi-million dollar dispute with General Flynn? There's a lot of drama at Stop the Steel High today. They're really laying it out. So he's basically saying like, Sydney's abandoned me, whatever. And then he says, why is Michael Flynn not helping me? And then Michael Flynn kind of, he sort of helps him and he he does this kind of like thing about like, wow, he actually posts a recording Lynn took of an interview with our own Zach Patrizzo, who now previous Fever Dreams guest now worked at the Daily Beast. And Lynn, and basically Lynn is claiming this exonerates him. I don't really think it does it anyway. But basically Michael Flynn is like, wow, the truth is out. Like he's very vague about who Flynn is backing up here. So then Lynn, I guess, feels that he's not being supported. And he brings up this whole thing where Michael Flynn was accused of being a Satanist a few weeks ago. I wrote about this at the Daily Beast, but basically Flynn used this prayer to St. Michael. But I think inadvertently it was actually from a cult. And it's just like, we call your sevenfold rays and legions and stuff. I mean, it's very, and then people were like, wait a minute, is Michael Flynn a Satanist? So then Lynn Wood, who had previously been like, Michael Flynn is not a Satanist, now says General Flynn owes patriots an explanation of this occult prayer. So things are really thrown down. And then finally, to cap it off, Sidney Powell posts like a Drake meme, basically like a Drake lyric. And it's like, it's not the stab in the back that kills you. It's when you turn around and see who's holding the knife. Oh, that breaks my heart. You know how our parents must have felt when the Beatles were starting to break up? Linwood, Sidney Powell, and Michael Flynn were just recording their Let It Be album. And then all this bullshit had to come and break up the gang. It's really disheartening to watch. There's that like internet meme where it's like really poorly photoshopped and it's this kid and he's like looking in a mirror and like he's coming out from the mirror with a gun and it's like, I can't even trust myself. I know Hollywood marriages are never <laughs> built last. Sidney Powell, Lynn Wood, and Michael Flynn, if they can't be held together with the anti-democratic MAGA glue that brought them so tightly together, especially in the aftermath of the 2020 presidential election, who is going to make it? I mean, these are people who appeared at a QAnon conference with Sydney Powell where she was wearing like a biker leather cut with a big Q on it. And it's like, this is the worst episode of Sons of Anarchy I've ever seen. So anyways, this is basically it. We were seeing kind of a breakup of the Stop the Steel gang. With that said, though, I think this might get a little interesting because I think Lynn Wood has a very strong base of devotees on the right. I think in, in a way that is often under-remarked upon. Now, I've seen him at a, at least one conference now. And I mean, he has, out of the guys we're talking about, with the exception of Mike Lindell, but certainly Patrick Byrne, Sidney Powell, Michael Flynn, Lynn Wood has more charisma than all those people combined. He is like a preacher out of a Flannery O'Connor story. He is up there. He's just, he's like, Q is real. Q is real. They're eating the children. And people like, I, I've seen like thousands of people just explode in a way that none of these people get anyone else going. So I don't know. Now, I think he'll survive this, but certainly Kyle Rittenhouse emerging from his acquittal and being like, there's one thing I want to say, and it's that Linwood deliberately kept me in jail, I think is not great for him. Oh, Linwood is definitely the sonic youth of all of the different anti-democrat cabal that we're talking about here. Like, Expand on that. He's not necessarily a chart in the top 40, but the intensity and the insanity of his most devoted fans, it's palpable. And you can tell that they think they are in the presence of either a rock star or some deranged but hugely charismatic Pentecostal preacher or somehow the magical nexus of those two elements. They really feel it. They fucking love the guy. But someone who Linwood has also been slagging recently, I would be remiss to not mention that you are in the category of individuals who the Trumpist attorney has dubbed as, and I quote, satanic. I think demonic, maybe? Same, same. So apparently in his interview with Zach, Lynn was 
saying like, I'll talk to you, young man, but you got to watch out for that demonic Will Summer. You and Michael Flynn in the same boat there, both satanic deep state. Maybe I got to link up with Michael Flynn and maybe we'll draw some pentagrams together. There's a lot of tough talk about suing various people and what have you. It is interesting. I mean, I think this is a guy who, like I said, a loose cannon, kind of forging his own path on the right. And yet I think he might pull it off. I think he's an interesting one to watch. Okay, moving on to something else that is currently going on on the American right that somehow sounds a little bit more normal or normal-ish than what we were talking about earlier. Will, have you been tracking what's been going on recently with the Pennsylvania Republican Party and the implosion of Sean Parnell's candidacy on Monday of this week? Yeah, you know, I think this is a very interesting case of a Trump-endorsed candidate just absolutely blowing up. Catch us up. What's going on here? First of all, for our listeners who may not know, Sean Parnell was considered a top contender in the Republican and Trumpy universe in recent months. He's been a fan favorite in those circles. He's been someone who, as Will mentioned, was specifically endorsed by former President Trump. He is someone who has been endorsed by a bunch of heavy hitters across the MAGA-verse and the Republican Party. He is viewed by a lot of people in the Fox News clique as a sort of war hero renegade, they were really pinning their hopes on this guy ending up in the U.S. Senate, assuming that there is going to be this big Republican wave that a lot of observers and a lot of strategists are expecting during the 2022 midterms. He really was a budding rock star in that specific universe, and he was a guy who a lot of people were expecting, okay, he is going to be our big Trumpian nationalist candidate representing Pennsylvania as a Republican in the U.S. Senate soon. But as fate would have it, for weeks he's been embroiled in this really nasty custody battle. Yeah, I mean, this guy was like a real hotshot. I mean, this guy's been thought of as a hotshot for like a long time, and this just is a huge implosion. Right. So the roots of the implosion lie in his long-brewing custody battle with his estranged wife, Lori Snell, who has accused him of some rather vicious abuse, not just of her, but of their child. These are allegations that Parnell has vehemently denied. But earlier this week, those allegations and whatever else was hashed out during this intense custody battle was enough to lose Sean custody. So this was something that he had signaled for a while, if he didn't get his way, could spell the end or at least suspension of his campaign. So following up on his word, Sean Parnell called Donald Trump yesterday to inform him that I got to step out. I got to focus all my energy on appealing this court decision about child custody, and I will not be able to be there for the Republican Party anymore during this race. Well, according to a person familiar with the matter who we at the Daily Beast spoke to yesterday, the former president was willing to let Parnell down easy. On the phone call, which was relatively brief, Donald Trump told Sean Parnell that he was right to focus on appealing the court's custody decision and that he understood. Now, that was Donald Trump being a nice guy on the telephone. As our listeners can probably guess, elsewhere behind the scenes, the former president is rather pissed. He is someone who has tried to play up this image as this indestructible endorser. If you gain the endorsement of Donald Trump in a race, particularly headed into the 2022 midterms, he at least wants the general public to believe that that is a bulletproof endorsement. You're going to win. Obviously, reality is a little bit more complicated. But now with uh, Parnell having dropped out because of this, Trump and his team are now on the hunt for someone else to endorse in what they consider a crucial race in Pennsylvania. 
And right now, it's really up in the air of who is going to get to kiss the ring next and be the inheritor of the endorsement after Sean Parnell's campaign implosion. I just want to underline here, I mean, this story has, like, if you haven't been following things super closely, people might have missed this story. This is really an interesting one because, I mean, Sean Parnell was like a golden boy of the GOP. I mean, this is a guy who was not only fated for a Senate seat. I mean, you have a veteran here. You have this guy who's in a battleground state. The sky was the limit, I think, in terms of his political career. And now because of these allegations, which are holding up thus far in court, it's all over. And I'm sure the GOP in general is very disappointed with that. Just to give our audience a quick idea of what these allegations actually are, Cornell's estranged wife, Laurie Snell, has accused him of choking her, throwing chairs at her, pinning her down, calling her a whore and a piece of shit, Snell testified in their custody dispute that Parnell had tried to choke her out on a couch and that she literally had to bite him to free herself from his grip. Quote, he was strangling me, end quote, she alleged. So this is the level of just graphic nastiness in terms of the allegations that were being flung during this custody fight that was happening against the backdrop of this political campaign of a Republican golden child. So Swin, so with Sean Parnell out, I think there's one big name left. And who is that person? Dr. Oz, Mr. Daytime talk show star, Dr. Oz is possibly weighing the candidacy for a Senate seat in that state. How familiar are you with Dr. Oz's antics, Will? Are you a fan of the show? Not that familiar. Okay, well, something that voters should know about him is that he's not just some beloved TV host or daytime talk show star. He's also someone who was, during the dawn of the coronavirus pandemic, was a huge booster of, you may remember, hydroxychloroquine. He was someone who was trying to do everything he can to talk to actual Trump administration officials, very senior Trump administration officials, promoting it as essentially a miracle cure. And he is someone who are reporting shows at the time, Trump kept asking senior administration officials about saying, look, I've seen Dr. Oz on Fox News promoting hydroxychloroquine. Where are we on this? Why aren't we doing more on this? So in terms of his connections to Donald Trump, could that lead to an endorsement? Maybe, maybe not. So Swin, who do we have on the podcast today? We have an independent researcher and historian based out of Washington, D.C., who has some interesting things to tell us about what happens when the popular conspiracy theory actually gets some validation. That's up next. Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
On this podcast, we spent a lot of time taking you on a whirlwind tour of the most influential and socially corrosive conspiracy theories roiling the spheres of political influence in the United States, particularly on America's right wing. If you're a regular Fever Dreams listener, you're used to hearing how tall tales that have been roundly and conclusively debunked are still managing to worm their way into affecting our country's elections and, at times, much to our collective horror, actually guiding policy in the Republican Party. However, for a podcast devoted so intensely to examining conspiracy theories in America, we need to also examine the flip side of the coin. What happens when certain conspiracy theories turn out to be partially or at times entirely vindicated with the help of time, thorough investigation, and hard evidence? For more on that, we want to turn our attention to a high-profile assassination that occurred in New York City in 1965, but one whose reverberations are still felt today in American courtrooms. I'm, of course, talking about the killing of Malcolm X. And today, we're joined by our guest, Abdur Rahman Muhammad, one of the leading experts on the Malcolm X assassination. He is an independent historian and activist based in the Washington, D.C. area, and his years-long work digging into and challenging the official police narrative on what actually happened on that fateful day in February 1965 is one of the reasons the truth is starting to emerge after all these many decades. You can find him on Twitter at arm underscore legacy, and you can see him starring in the fusion documentary series Who Killed Malcolm X, which is currently streaming on Netflix. Abdur Rahman, welcome to Fever Dreams. Thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure to be with you. Well, just to kick things off, for the uninitiated, for people who aren't as deep into the weeds as you are on this topic, can you please give our audience a crash course on your and how we got to last week's stunning news and exonerations on this topic? Last Thursday, November 22nd, 2021, a history was made when the convictions of two men who were convicted for the assassination of Malcolm X in 1966 was thrown out. They were completely exonerated. The two men at that time were known as Norman 3X Butler and Thomas 15X Johnson. They changed their name while in prison to Muhammad Abdulaziz and Khalil Islam. Sadly, Khalil was not able to enjoy this victory as he passed away in 2009. But Mohammed Abdulaziz is still with us and he's 83 years old. And they have been completely cleared of the stain that has been on their legacy and on the, their family name now for 56 years. Can you explain to our listeners what got us to this point? Obviously, you, with your work as an independent researcher on this, played a role. But how did the truth finally come out after so many decades? Well, the reality is that as Barry Sheck was one of the attorneys for the Innocence Project, who was one half of the legal team that led this charge, the lead counsel being uh, David Shaney's, both of them did a phenomenal job. But the case that Attorney Sheck made in the courtroom is that this was an exoneration that was hiding in plain sight. We have known for decades that these men were innocent. Many historians have written about it. I'm not the only one who has looked at this issue. There are many, many scholars and historians who never accepted the official story of the assassination of Malcolm X. And what we did Thursday 
was to finally bring it to a conclusion and to vindicate these two men who have been wrongly accused, convicted, and scandalized for all of their lives by being branded as the assassins of Malcolm X. And what role did law enforcement and or the FBI play in terms of allowing this lie to be stood up as the official narrative for just so many years? Well, what we showed in our docuseries currently on Netflix is that the Federal Bureau of Investigation had nine undercover operatives or informants in the Autobahn ballroom the day of the assassination who filed reports and described these assassins to a T from head to toe. And the New York City Police Department had a ultra-secret unit called BOSS, or Bureau of Special Services. And one of their undercover police officers, a man by the name of Gene Roberts, who was standing on security right in the front and saw exactly who killed Malcolm X. None of these operatives were ever identified nor made aware to the prosecution or the defense team that could clear these brothers of the charge that was put on them. So this suggests uh, prosecutorial misconduct in some way in terms of framing these brothers up to be convicted for this crime. Let's quickly separate what we do know from what we do not know. Because even or especially because of these official exonerations, there are still a hell of a lot of lingering questions of, okay, if they didn't do it, then who did? Who actually ordered it? Etc. Etc. There are still lingering questions about to what degree law enforcement could have allowed this to happen. You can get into this way better than I can, obviously. As you and others have pointed out, including in the documentary series you were talking about, it is a matter of historical record that on the day of the assassination, there was a conspicuous lack of police presence in the area of the theater. And around that time, when there were highly charged political events or rallies, In that very specific area in New York City, it was not uncommon for there to be a significant police presence. And at that day, it was almost reduced to zero. So what questions remain around that? What do we know and what do we do not know? And what is still in the realm of unproven conspiracy theory on the question of what role law enforcement did or did not play? Well, of course, Malcolm X was firebombed. His home was firebombed a week earlier. And law enforcement knew that his life was in danger. And so it was conspicuous that there was an appalling lack of security presence at the Autobahn Ballroom that afternoon, February 21st, 1965. As well, Cyrus Vance, the DA, a Manhattan DA who investigated the case or reinvestigated it. What Cyrus Vance found that police had tipped off a reporter about the speech that Malcolm was going to give on February 21st, 1965, and he was told to attend on that specific day, was suggested that they had foreknowledge that something horrible was going to happen that afternoon, and something horrible did happen. The questions that remain unanswered is how did the government develop this case against these men? Cyrus Vance found that all of the records related to the lineup, the identification of these men, the witnesses, all of this was removed from the file, or at the very least, it doesn't exist anymore. So it's hard to construct the details of how the case was built against these men. That's very problematic. Okay, so... After all of this time, what was it specifically that lit the fuse that renewed such interest in Malcolm X's assassination? What was it that actually got us to this point 
Because as you pointed out before, so much evidence and so much memory and recollection of that horrible day has just been completely washed away by history at this point. Well, the game changer was the research that I presented in 2010. I wrote a, an article on my website where I positively identified the shotgun assassin. His name at that time was William X. Bradley from Newark, New Jersey, from the Newark Mosque, Mosque number 25. That revelation was included in the Pulitzer Prize winning biography on Malcolm X by Dr. Manning Marable was titled A Life of Reinvention. The identification of this man putting a face to the shooter, one of the, the principal shooters, the shotgun shooter, the, which was ruled the cause of death by the coroner. Once that happened, that revived the case. Before that, it was frozen in the history books. That material there, that revelation was the bedrock for our series who killed Malcolm X. Really, I would say the turning point, the catalyst for all of this was this positive identification, which cleared the men who were exonerated the other day. Got it. And speaking of the men who were exonerated, obviously behind them, there is a largely untold story about the human cost, the human toll that was visited upon particularly their families. Those going on during the backdrops of these cases for just so many years. Can you tell us more about what you have documented because you've gotten to know these men, you've gotten to know their families, about what has happened to them throughout all this time while the lie of who was responsible for killing Malcolm X has been able to fester? It's a very sad story. Both men spent at least 20 years in prison. They were released in 1985 and 1987. Khalil Islam did 22 years. Muhammad Abdulaziz did 20. However, that was not the end of it because they had to live out the rest of their lives with the stigma, with the stain of being the murderers of one of the most beloved, if not the most consequential leader in Black America, Malcolm X. They had to live with that. And they experienced hardship and suffering and pain as a result of that stigma, always having to move, always having to be on their guard for someone who may have wanted to enact some type of street justice against them. Their children were taunted and bullied and abused in the playgrounds. Coming up, your father was the murderer of Malcolm X. In the case of Muhammad Abdulaziz, he had six children. He's lost contact with most of them. It is great, his children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren. They don't even know who he is. And they really wanted nothing to do with him because they believed for all these years that he was the assassin of Malcolm X. Same thing with the family of Khalil Islam, a formerly Thomas 15X Johnson. It, the toll that it took on them was absolutely horrific. His wife at the time was pregnant with one of his sons, Shahid. And uh, these kids grew up without their father, which had uh, ramifications that are still being felt in terms of lack of guidance, missteps in life. They had no counselor, no mentor, no protector. And it's absolutely been a tragedy all the way around. Abdur Rahman, you talked about the role your work played as really sort of a monumental one in getting these men exonerated. What got you interested in this case in the first place? Well, because I love Malcolm X and he was very influential on my life. I am at heart an activist. 
And I just thought that it was appalling that no one was trying to get to the bottom of this case. There was no desire whatsoever to try to rectify this wrong conviction. There was no desire to correct the historical record. And I was first exposed to it in the early 80s when I was in college. However, once I became a Muslim around 1986 or so and began to move in certain circles where I would hear things, right? And I learned things about the case. I met people who knew Malcolm X. I met people who knew these assassins, the true assassins. And this began my journey of reading all of the books pulling documents, reading documents, and putting it all together. So in terms of your interest in this particular case, you've also spent time debunking elements of the story that have turned out to be, shall we say, a little too on the nose to be true. Can you tell us about a letter that was released, I believe, earlier this year, and if I recall correctly, turned out to be entirely a forgery? It was something where someone was claiming it provided a direct link between law enforcement and the engineering of Malcolm X's death. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, this is a, what I call the Ray Wood deathbed confession hoax. There was another undercover police officer for the boss unit, Bureau of Special Services. His name was Ray Wood. He was a police. I wouldn't say he was an officer because he had a higher rank than that. But over the years, there was a conspiracy theory floating around that Ray Wood had a hand in weakening the security of Malcolm's detail at the Autobahn ballroom that day by ensnaring two men that he said were critical to Malcolm's security by ensnaring them in a plot to blow up the Statue of Liberty. So the way the hoax went is last year, one of his cousins, a man by the name of Reggie Wood, came forward and claimed that he had a deathbed confession from his cousin claiming that this man, Ray Wood, was actually involved in the assassination of Malcolm X and that he was full of regret and sorrow for his role in the assassination and that he's sorry and so on and so forth. And the whole thing just turned out to be one big scam and a hoax that involved the Shabazz family, attorney Benjamin Crump. It was a very high profile press conference that was held at the former Audubon Ballroom, which is the Malcolm X Betty Shabazz Center now, where this letter was touted before the world as a, a deathbed confession. And at the end of the day, it, it all turned out to be smoke and mirrors and just one big scam. Got it. And the motivation behind that was? Was money. The way it was explained to me, and in fact, I just learned this week that this man, Reggie Wood, his daughter was with him when they were watching our series, Who Killed Malcolm X? And the scam developed in his mind right there as he was watching the series. He literally went and got a whiteboard and chalked out the whole scam. And I learned this from a reporter from one of the papers of record in the country who explained this to me that Reggie Wood's daughter shared with them the scam and how he conceived it, put it together. We debunked it long before that. I did a video on it which led to an explosive Washington Post article where John Jay, College of Criminal Law, and other scholars came forward to shore me up. I was the first scholar to jump out there with any type of reputation to say that it was a fraud and a hoax. And after we did that, it completely evaporated. 
You haven't heard anything about it. Gotcha. So in terms of separating fact from fiction, what do you have in your research that we do concretely know was suspicious in terms of what law enforcement did or did not do around the time of the assassination? Like, what are the key data points that really make you raise an eyebrow as an independent researcher on this topic? Well, the first thing is, why weren't these undercover operatives, informants, why weren't they called to the stand? Why weren't they identified to the defense team or the prosecution for that matter? Their identities were protected. And what the DA Cyrus Vance announced the other day is that none other than J. Edgar Hoover himself vetoed any notion that these agents or these informants would reveal their identities. He vetoed it. He blocked them from doing that. Same thing with the New York City Police Department. They protected the identity of Gene Roberts, who was on Malcolm's security detail, who witnessed the entire thing, who was standing up front, and he could have easily identified the assassins. He asked, what is one of the data points? The data points is the next day, February 22nd, you see reports that were filed by these agents. And none of that was brought to the attention of the defense team or the prosecution. I mean, that's probably the most disturbing aspect of the whole story. So, Abir Rahman, you're obviously very familiar with sort of the secret history, the underground history of events in the 60s. I'd be curious about some other things. I mean, what are some other incidents you think maybe could do with more exploration, assassinations? I'm thinking of that book about maybe Charles Manson being a CIA asset. I'd just be curious about if there's anything else there you'd like to explore. Not really. I stay in my lane. I've studied the assassination of Malcolm X, and that's consumed all of my energy. However, I will say this, that when we look at the assassination, the FBI is deeply involved in fomenting hatred against Malcolm X, propaganda against him. They planted poison pen letters. They planted newspaper articles that suggested he wanted to be the new leader, that he was the number two man, that he was hungry for power, which presented him as a man who was hungry for leadership, wanted to supplant Elijah Muhammad, the leader of the movement, which created jealousy and a, a backlash against them. This was all done by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. I mean, their hands are dirty as hell in this whole thing. And they are equally guilty, along with the men who carried it out, the shotgun assassin, the men who fired the Ruger, the 45, and the other two men in the back who created the disturbance. They're all equally guilty. New York City Police Department who knew it was going to happen, who called one of their reporters and said, hey, you need to get down to the Autobahn ballroom. Something big is going to happen tomorrow. So, no, they're all equally guilty as far as I'm concerned. The gunmen, the trigger men who carried it out, the New York City Police Department and the FBI, which created and stoked the environment of hatred and hostility against Malcolm, which and they could just easily sit back and allow it to play out after they had set certain forces in motion. Well, I guess my last question for you is referencing the title of the docuseries that you start in, Who Killed Malcolm X? Is that a question that, given your years of work on this very topic, you are ever expecting to have answered? No, I don't believe that. I believe that most of it, we do know what happened. There were five men who were Black Muslims from Newark's mosque in Newark, New Jersey, mosque number 25, who organized a squad to go to the Audubon ballroom and 
carry this crime out. They organized it. They strategized. They planned. Over the years, these men remained in the Muslim community, and many people knew who they were, as we showed in our series. So that much about it we do know. We know from the FBI documents that they were creating an environment of hostility and vitriol against Malcolm. We do know that. And we know that Gene Roberts, who was an undercover police officer for the Bureau of Special Services, was on duty that day. And he saw what happened and he was never called to the stand. So I don't want to leave your audience with the idea that this is some type of unsolved mystery. We know a lot about what happened with the assassination of Malcolm X. Now, the only thing we'd like to know is who are the names under all of these redacted documents? Who are these names? Who are these government informants and officials who knew what was going on or who possibly played a role in it? That's beyond the resources that I have. That's going to be the work of government to finally get to the bottom of those questions. Abdur Rahman, absolutely fascinating stuff. Keep doing what you're doing. And thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. We really appreciate your time. Hey, the pleasure's all mine. Thank you. And now, listeners, we return to our beloved recurring segment of Fresh Hell, in which we introduce you, the audience, to something batshit that's going on in our world this very day. Will, tell us more about the Hunter Biden biopic. This is something that I have been looking forward to for quite some time. Yeah, you know, we've been doing a lot of movie stuff in Fresh Hell lately, but you know, it's Thanksgiving, right? That's the time for movies. Settle in with your family. And perhaps, not out yet, but perhaps one movie you maybe will be able to watch next Thanksgiving is My Son Hunter, the Hunter Biden biopic from the folks who brought you the Lisa Page, Peter Strzok play, FBI Lovebirds. So these are some conservative folks, Ann McElhinney and Phelan McAleer. Real names of real people. Real names. I believe they are from the British Isles. So what we have here is a biopic from some conservative activists about Hunter that is going to feature Hunter, obviously, smoking crack, cutting shady deals in Ukraine and China. This has been bubbling along for a little bit. I mean, the backstory here is, so they made this play starring Dean Cain of Lois and Clark fame about Lee. Lisa Page and Peter Strzok, where they read out their text messages. And I will say, I saw it both at CPAC and like an early read version of it. And Dean Kane, just like the oil that oozed from him in the performance was really something to see. So for a conservative theater world, that's like you got to see this marquee event before it got to Broadway and also during its marquee. Yeah, Broadway I'm like run. one of those guys who goes to Broadway wearing like a scarf around my neck. Like I'm a real fancy guy for it. But anyway, so it was at CPAC and I interviewed Phelan and he had actually just been to the White House to talk about the play with Trump. And he was like, yeah, Trump talked to me for like 90 minutes about how much he loved the play. And this was this. Oh, my God. This was a week before everything shut down for the virus. This was the little did we know that actually there was a currently an outbreak at CPAC as we were there. And it was just very funny. I was like, hold up. Wait, he spent like two hours talking with you about your play. But the world is in chaos. And he said, oh, I guess that's true. I remember you and I reporting out that story together. And this was told to us all on the record. White House did not deny it. I couldn't believe. I mean, I guess I could believe because it was Donald fucking Trump. But this is what the then leader of the free world was focusing on when it seemed like the world was on the brink of fucking collapse. It was a perfect 
microcosm of everything else that was to come during Donald Trump's presidency as the coronavirus pandemic was just completely upturning the country. And oh, exactly. You couldn't have written it better if you were trying to write a nasty piece of fiction about Donald Trump. So that production ran into a little trouble because one of the actors basically was like, wait a minute, why am I in this crazy conservative production and quit? So, but it seems like the, this gang has learned from their mistakes. And so now they're really loading up on conservative actors. So this time, we Hunter is played by a British guy who had a disastrous run in for London mayor named Lawrence Fox. He ran for mayor, promising to save London from wokery. So we've got his picture here. Here, he kind of, I don't know. I don't think he looks that much like Hunter. He's kind of like a white guy with an angular face. Who knows? I'm looking at a photo. He looks nothing like Hunter Biden. He looks, <laughs> oh my God, he looks like Andrew Giuliani. That's true. He kind of looks like a thinner faced Andrew Giuliani. The big, the, the real headline getter here though, and this was announced last week, is that Gina Carano will be on board. Gina Carano from The Mandalorian. What a step up in Hollywood circles. You go from the fucking Star Wars universe Mandalorian to the Hunter Biden biopic. I'm trying to think. I can't think of an ascent or descent in Hollywood that on the nose. I really can't. I mean, congratulations to her. Well, and she's also making a movie with Ben Shapiro Productions. Here's her description. She's a world-weary Secret Service agent, president for most of the Biden family's dodgy dealings. She provides a voice of truth and sardonic comedy over the absurd dealings of the Biden family. Oh my God, they ripped off this idea idea of a movie that I don't think has been produced yet, but there was this script floating around Hollywood years ago that was reported on by The Hollywood Reporter about a Reagan biopic, and it was going to be told through the lens of a fictional Soviet secret agent whose job it was to tail and report on Ronald Reagan around the time I think he was elected to governor in California. And it's sort of this Soviet agent who through the decades develops this begrudging respect for Reagan. So it's about Ronald Reagan, but it's told through the eyes of this fictional Soviet agent. They totally ripped off this idea. But for Hunter Biden, somebody with obviously a lot less historical gravitas than Ronald Reagan. Well, we haven't seen the extent of his potential gravitas yet. This is sort of like the trades here. This is a Hollywood trade publication. And I keep up on the upcoming movies. This should certainly be something to see. I got to say this Lawrence Fox guy looks nothing like Hunter Biden, but it's one to watch. I, I cannot wait until this production is endorsed by Donald Trump himself. Given how enthusiastic he was about these guys' work during the onset of the coronavirus pandemic while sitting in the actual Oval Office, I'm sure he'll have something to do with the promotion of what I'm sure is to be a very well-made and extremely even-handed biopic about the current president's son. Absolutely. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.